You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mike Green, I'm here on video with Dan McMurtry of Tyro Capital. Dan, I'm really excited to have you on here in your non-Super Magatu persona. Um, <laughs> those who know you obviously know you through Twitter. You're one of the bright young minds on FinTwit that has you know, appeared on the scene in a way that I certainly couldn't have imagined 25 or 30 years ago when I got started in this business. Uh, maybe you can give us just some very brief background in terms of who you are beyond a fantastic Twitter avatar. <laughs> uh, sure. So I manage uh, the Tyra Absolute Return Fund. We're a long, short uh, fundamental manager. We try to do things a little differently. Uh, we'll get into that in, in a little bit. I was at Notre Dame. My now business partner and I, Alex Dream, um, uh, manage the investment club, and we both came from families that you know, were entrepreneurial and uh, his family started an auto supply business. And my family had started some restaurants and some healthcare and industrial businesses. And so that was kind of what we grew up around. And we were really interested in supply chain analysis and really understanding where businesses sat competitively. And um, we had a really good working relationship. And so by the time we were graduating college, we really wanted to launch a fund um, and build a track record. And we were looking, we were seeing fewer and fewer people get access to risk, even if they had kind of taken that conventional you know, two years banking, MBA, whatever path. And so we were talking to a lot of successful alumni at Notre Dame who were 30, 35, 40, and had really never gotten a chance to actually take a risk-taking or be in a risk-taking position. Um, and so we decided, you know, not knowing a whole lot that we were going to put a fund together. So I went to a family office for a year. And while I was there, I kind of figured out how to start a fund. And uh, Alex went to Citibank and did industrials investment banking. And then in August in 2015, we launched. Um, and so it's been a kind of wild ride the last five years. We've had to learn pretty much everything the hard way, uh, which was not fun in the process. I think now, in retrospect, it's a big advantage because we've we really understand in detail how everything works because we've had to you know do it by hand essentially. Uh, and now we're kind of start, starting to really scale the fund, and we've outperformed the market with about 25% net long exposure on average. Uh, so we're pretty happy with that, and we've you know been able to dodge a lot of the big drawdowns in the market and protect capital. So we've been able to do what we've set out to, and I think we're still getting better because we're we're twenty nine thirty, and um, you know we're just trying to get smarter every day. That's our only job. You answered one of the really critical questions that I get a lot of times from people, which is you know how do you get into this business? How do I become a portfolio manager? How do I get that seat? And you hit on something that I think is actually really critical, which is, is that the path that historically had been taken, where people would go to a Wall Street investment bank and sit on a prop desk or go to work for another asset manager and gain years of experience and then eventually be tapped to run a portfolio in a new product launch, for example, um, or build a reputation after those years and be able to launch in a uh effectively a name brand type event where you raise immediately off the bat 100, 200, 500 million dollars. 
that's really no longer an opportunity in the space. I mean, there are obviously people that work at firms like I did at Canyon Partners or others where you can leave and you can instantly attract institutional capital. But many of those paths have been reduced and the industry has largely gone X growth, which creates real challenges for younger people who are trying to break in. Does that feel fair to you? Yeah, they're what we what we call blessed managers that are kind of uh, you know there's there's five or ten launches every year now that are people like uh, Lee Fixel or Mike Simonovsky or what have you that come out of you know particular tribes, and they have uh, they've been endowed by the powers that be with with significant advantages and and um, and that's great, but that's such a small number of people and. Even if you go through the conventional paths, your odds of getting there, even if you're in the same firms as those people, your odds of being that guy within the firm are one in 50. Um, and so it's it's just gotten a lot harder. I mean, and this is everything. I mean, one of the statistics we had in a letter we put out a couple quarters ago was if you're talking about going to higher education, if you're talking about top 10 schools, you know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all those uh, kind of feeders, these great firms, the odds of getting into those have gone from seven to one in 2000 to I think 21 or 22 to one in 2020. So might gotten a little might have gotten a little bit easier this year, but um, that's just everything. It's gotten way more competitive, and also the amount of assets the that allocators need to put to work are so large that it just doesn't make sense in terms of their costs to go be giving 20 million or 50 million to these startup firms that are very hard to do diligence and there's a lot of tail risks and especially in the managers that have big returns you know there's more tail risk if you have a super high return or super high sharp strategy so when you really work out the incentives there it makes sense why that's happening um, but yeah I think it is an issue in the lack of the prop desks um, you know there are still some good prop trading firms but those career paths don't necessarily flow into running a fund um, it's 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 harder. There's just fewer opportunities, fewer seats, and also the people in the generations above us um, really are not handing off the baton. Like I don't know that that ever really happened, but it's that's what we read happened. So when I read Market Wizards or Inside of the House of Money, or I read all these stories about the pit traders in the 70s and the 80s, and all that. I mean, the first trader I ever knew was a guy named Jerry Parker that was a, a turtle trader who worked for Richard Dennis and literally answered a, an ad in the paper, went to work for Richard Dennis. He taught him the system for systematic momentum and then, you know, went and started his own firm, was able to raise a few billion dollars. And, you know, it was just a completely different universe, top to bottom, in terms of how that worked. Um, that's not the way any of this works anymore. So we kind of said, well, we'll go launch our own fund with some money, start to build a record. We'll, at, we'll be the only ones when we're 26, 27, 28, 29 will be the only ones our age who has significant risk-taking experience, um, meaning we'll probably lose a lot and we'll get smarter, but we need to control how big those losses are. Um, and maybe that'll play out. And if it doesn't, we'll have a good business school essay or something like that, which was you know, a very naive way to go about it. If I went back, uh, if I could time travel back and talk to my former self, I'd probably smack him several times. But you know, it's worked out for us. And, and a lot of that's you know, luck, and but it's mostly just we've controlled the bad things that have happened. You know, so we've you know we've had investments go horribly wrong, but those have been two, three, four hundred basis point hits, not you know, a thousand, two thousand basis point hits. So you know, it's pretty easier. It's a lot easier to survive if you have some risk management understanding. If you're young and naive, uh, I see a lot of young traders right now who are trying to put up big numbers, and I'm like, what's in your portfolio? And they're like, I have four stocks. And I was like, cool, but if one of those goes wrong. 
uh, it's over for you. So you know you need to you do have to survive long enough to execute your strategy, and that's a constant struggle. And I am seeing some allocators now start to shift back into looking for emerging managers. Like I, I would give huge credit to MIT now publicly soliciting you know emerging managers coming into them, and that didn't exist a few years ago. And if that did exist a few years ago, maybe we would have done things differently. But um, you know, there's this there's a huge mismatch between the emerging young talent and where capital is and how those two things meet. Um, and I think capital sort of by default almost assumes that there still are these pathways of becoming a portfolio manager and hasn't really looked into the numbers of how that works. And also given that there's so few people who can move through those processes, there's actually a lot of noise that gets injected into that. And so you have situations now where, you know, if you have five or 10 big launches a year, maybe a third or half of them got there due to political reasons, not skill. And so then half your cohort doesn't turn out well, and then that justifies the bias that uh, active managers can't succeed. And the question is, what when we look at emerging managers, are we really measuring the talent of emerging managers, or are we measuring the output of a specific political function? And that's a different, longer conversation. But you know, we just went in and said we're just going to try it. We're going to try to just basically drag race it and try to just go do it. And we didn't know what we didn't know, so that's what enabled us to take the risk we did. Is we didn't realize how much risk we were taking. Um, and we've been able to kind of muddle through. And I think the reason we've survived is we've just constantly sought out mentorship and, and help from a lot of other people that have seen things we haven't seen before. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So when you think about that type of dynamic, um, you know, it's funny because you, you mentioned something that was really important there, which is just that the path through a hedge fund, particularly a larger hedge fund, or through a larger um, money management firm is very different than it would have been 15, 20 years ago, even, you know, even before that, and that there is a huge component of navigating a large institution as compared to, we talked about prop desks, for example, you know, very yeah. transparent organizations in which it's quite clear what you're, you know, what you're eating and what you're killing, right, um, in terms of that process. And so I think that's, you, you that's a, a, a really important point that I think people tend to underappreciate. The second thing that you hit on is the dynamic of raising capital. And there's two things about capital that I think are really challenging. The first is one that you hit on, which is this idea, it costs roughly the exact same amount of money to put a million dollars with an emerging manager as it does to, to put a hundred million dollars with an existing manager, right? The, the actual effort that's required to manage and monitor that account is quite significant. And it's really hard to envision a scenario in which that million dollar allocation grows into a hundred million dollar allocation, whereas it's quite easy to think of the hundred growing to 200, right? So right. the effort that's required to shepherd new managers into the business and to teach them, give them the opportunity to gain experience is really, really hard. It's just really expensive and hard and it requires discipline and effort. And in an environment in which everyone, I had a, a, a video that I just did with my friend Louis Gav, it was called CYA, right? Cover your ass. <laughs> and in an environment in which the single best job that you can probably have is an allocator who is taking a very nice job 
and putting it at risk every time he goes out of his traditional mandate and doesn't buy IBM, but instead buys Tyro partners, for example, that creates risk for them in terms of their career that is difficult to overcome as well, right? And then it's further compounded. I know that you have made a number of choices, and I'd like to talk about those for a second, but you've made a number of choices to make your firm institutional from the get-go. But most people who are trying to launch this on a startup or a shoestring basis don't have those sorts of uh, doesn't don't have that type of infrastructure in place, and so it becomes very much a catch twenty two. How do you spend the money so that you develop that infrastructure? How do you um, attract the institutional capital without having spent that money and and uh, putting that in place? It's really, really challenging, and I think that we could almost just sum this whole piece up, which for the viewing audience, it's it, you are a great example of why the hardest part of this business is often not managing money or picking stocks, but the process of actually building and managing a business, which, which is reasonable. That's where yeah. it should be hardest. When I think about Tyro Partners and I think about what you've done to kind of raise your profile, I mentioned this early on in a somewhat joking fashion, but you know, you were quite active in Twitter. When I first came onto Twitter, I remember seeing the Super <laughs> Magatu character and be like, oh, that guy sounds really cool. He must be really smart. He must, you know, et cetera. Now, of course, all that proved out to be false, but the um, but what drove you onto Twitter? What what brought you onto Twitter and where did you when did you begin to recognize that there was actually a business case in terms of your public persona on Twitter? It's been an evolution there. I think when as I said, well, as we just discussed, when we started, we had no resources. So we had to figure out, okay, how can we how can we find clever ways to get access to things that other people aren't gonna think of? And we started realizing you were looking at those dynamics you were talking about in a big firm or other things like that. We realized that there were generational gaps and format gaps and other types of kind of psychological arbitrages we could do. And so, you know, Twitter became this incredibly powerful thing because if you if you use it correctly and and, and I think there's a big lie about digital media. Everybody thinks digital media is democratizing. That's not true. Digital media has a hierarchy. And it's a very complicated skill-based game. And so everybody's afraid to use digital media because they think they're going to give their edge away and it's going to flatten out. It's like, no, it's just going to go into all this noise and nobody can find the signal in it. And so what we kind of realized was if you actually use it correctly and you use it basically to meet people, form meaningful relationships, be helpful to people, all of that, um, it can compound really, really quickly. And so we think of you know the capital's compounding, but also you need your – uh, human capital and your network capital to compound. And Twitter is in a, a remarkably efficient way of doing that. And the other thing is you can kind of just go and throw something out there and Twitter is going to tell you what, think, what it thinks of it. So you can constantly be iterating how you're interacting with people, how you're putting ideas out there, what you're doing. And we went, you know, we started going to happy hours and all this. We didn't really know very many people. So we said, okay, part of the job needs to be meeting people. So we made sure every day we had a coffee or a happy hour, one minimum per day. And then we made sure we'd follow up and do favors for anyone anywhere we can to go, I don't know about this. If somebody asked me about a company I know about, I'd write them a memo that I thought was thoughtful and make sure that I'm following up as much as possible. Um, and over three, four, five years, that's, you know, I've probably met, I mean, two or 3,000 people off that, which sounds insane, but actually, you know, a very large number of people. 
Um, and I was able to start getting ideas out there. And so last year we did this thing where we said, we're going to publish this paper on online dating. And, um, and what our hypothesis was that we're going to not pitch a stock. We're just going to talk about the market. And we put it out there and everybody in that industry from all the major companies, all the startups, everybody all of a sudden reached out to talk to us. And I had every possible view on that industry. Um, I mean, better than, you know, literally I had friends who were spending a bunch of money on expert networks and I had better access than they did. So we started realizing, you know, you can iterate that and advance your scale level at that. And it was hugely helpful. And so it's allowed us to just meet all these people. And at this point, the access level is kind of crazy because there's very, very few people that I can't get to if I ping the right person and say, hey, and a lot of these people I've never met. I've just had, you know, a funny banter exchange on Twitter. And I think the world's moving more and more digital and that's becoming intrinsic to markets. And I think it's going to be a table stake skill. And there's very few people that can actually interface with Wall Street and interface with this digital world. Um, and I, I think that's a, you know, a new frontier and it's really, people haven't played out how that's really gonna play out over the next five or 10 years. And we have some big things coming in the next uh, next few weeks we're actually gonna announce that I think people will find cool in, in that regard. Well, I, I know some of those and so I'm actually really excited for you. But um, I, I would say that you hit on a, on, on a couple of really important components there. One, this idea that you met thousands of people being in New York, right? And so this speaks to one of the things that you've talked about. You've kind of taken, along with Josh Wolf and some of my other friends, you've taken, you know, uh, I guess it's the the under on the idea that cities are going away, that everyone's going to leave, right? So there's a, a physical network aspect. You're shaking your head. Yeah, there's no. a physical ne network aspect that I think people tend to forget. And it's very easy to forget that when you rely on Twitter, because Twitter is extraordinarily useful in that framework, right. right? But that ability to capitalize on it and turn that into a network on a physical basis is, I think, quite important. And it's going to be one of the reasons that we probably come out of this pandemic pathway and people start sitting back down again. The second thing that you hit on, though, is an incredible lesson for young people, which is when somebody asked you something or as you looked at these, you said, we did favors for them. We did work. We offered value. And that's did, was that intuitive? Did you understand that or was, did somebody set you on that path? Because there's I, I oh. often find that I find young people reach out and they say, hey, what would you advise me to do? Right. And. As a senior person, you're always you always want to be helpful and available to them. But there's also a, a very serious element of my time is somewhat limited. Right. What are you offering me in exchange for this advice? Right. I mean, my there's like two or three things there. One, I, I just kind of like came from a you know big Irish family where everybody's just very friendly. And if somebody walks into the bar and looks lost, you're like, hey, buddy, come over here. I'll get you a beer. That's kind of the culture. But um I was very frustrated in the first year or two of doing this because nothing was working. You know, we thought we were going to raise $15 million, three showed up, and, and people who I had made significant amounts of money for in the past just didn't invest. And I was asking for incredibly trivial amounts of money, and they had committed to me. And it was, and I, I felt hurt and betrayed by some of these people. And um, you know, I later had to just get over that because I'm an adult. But I was really frustrated, so I went to a mentor of mine, and I said, I said, you know, nothing's working. Da da da, and and he was like, look, two things you need to know. One, he said, I've invested in a lot of successful things. I've been involved in a lot of successful things. Nothing that has been successful that I've ever seen or been involved in happened the way the person wanted or thought it would go. It doesn't go the way, even if it's good, 
it's not actually how you plan it from the beginning. And I think if you look at, like Jeff Bezos is a great example. He started off selling books. There was no way he'd predict what Amazon was doing now. Um, and so the point he said is you need to detach yourself from outcomes. And I think when you're a younger person, you're constantly going because you want something. And the person you're talking to can feel that you want something from them and it's a little awkward because you have a fixed amount of time and also I'm, I'm there because I want something. And I'm not, I'm not really trying to build a relationship. And, um, and, and that's, that has a toxic effect. And then this, and, and so that was one thing is he's like, look, detach yourself from the outcome and try to build long-term relationships and don't worry about where it goes. And the second thing was, um, you know, looking at, um, you know, and he's like, how many people ask you for a favor or a coffee or something? And you can't figure out how you'd get anything out of it. I'm like, well, all the time. And he's like, all right, start just doing those. Stop thinking about them. If you have extra time, just do that. Because you're going to be amazed all of a sudden people are, you're going to be in people's headspace and they're going to go, hey, that'd be useful to Dan or Dan would like that idea or this other guy has a problem. And, you know, I know this other guy who can solve that. And he's like, that's how you build a network is you're helpful and useful to people. People. And I said this on Twitter the other day. People think of networking as like a thing that rich kids inherit or like a lazy thing that slackers have. That's really not what it is. A network is people who know and trust you. And you have to build that by being reliable and value-add and helpful and just kind of being a good person. And so I just kind of started trying to figure out, you know, if there's little things I can do just advising my friend's startup or listening to somebody talk about an investment they have or, you know, talking to somebody about going into finance or, you know, whatever it was. And all these things in the short term, you know, it just seems like you just have a coffee with somebody, you have a drink with somebody, whatever, and you follow up. Following up's huge. But then over a period of months and years, all of a sudden, all these good things just start to emerge. And it seems like luck starts spawning from the ground um, because people start to remember you and they have positive affiliations and things just start getting referred into you that are positive and there's a network effect. And, you know, so there's negative gossip, which everybody knows about. There's also positive gossip of people saying, no, he's actually a really good guy and he's very smart. And that, but that takes time to build and you have to maintain that. And so it takes several years for it to really start rolling. And then it becomes a fairly unstoppable snowball. Um, and so that's something we've really pushed on and made very deliberate. Um, and it's, it's actually funny because like, you know, with Twitter, occasionally I'll say something or whatever and people will start attacking me and there will just be people I've never spoken to will come out of nowhere and start defending me online. Um, and mostly because of that. And so, you know, we've really tried to do that as a, as a deliberate strategic choice. And it also just makes your life better because then wherever you go, you know, you're friends with everybody, you don't want anything from anybody. You haven't wronged anybody, and they like you. And you know it makes going to happy hours a lot more fun because you're just you're friends with everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, one of the things I see with younger people making that transition, um, particularly coming out of college, right? So up until college, and even through college to a certain extent, while you may not think about it this way, everybody that you've interacted with an an, on an adult basis, or almost everyone that you've interacted with on an adult basis, you are actually the customer, right? You have paid right. somebody to educate you. You have paid somebody to be your teacher, you have paid somebody to be your counselor, right? Whether they perceive that correctly or incorrectly, if you went the private school route, you probably had a better experience from that standpoint than if you went the public school route. 
but they all work for you. And suddenly you have to flip that around and say, how do I create value for these other people? Right. Because right. they've got no time for that. You're not paying them. You're actually most people don't understand that when you go to work in your first job, you're not making anyone any money. You're a cost center. Right. right. And that's that's really important. I mean, it's part of the reason why I think that that uh, you continually see this slam of the subsequent generation. Right. So, you know, the boomers were hated by the silence and the, the Gen Xers were hated by the boomers and the Gen Xers now can't stand the millennials. And, you know, the moment, you know, the next generation comes in, the millennials will say, oh, these guys had no idea what they're doing. They're terrible. They're just a cost center, et cetera. Right. You forget how unproductive you are, no matter how hard you're working at a young age. And one of the best ways to address that is asking people, what can I do for you? What could be helpful and not doing so necessarily in a, in a formal way? It can be a throwaway conversation where somebody has, says, you know, I'm thinking about this. And then you step aside and you go do some work on that for them without being paid, without, you know, having significant expectations for them thinking you're the greatest thing ever. Right? If nothing else, they'll often take the time to give you feedback on the work that you did so that it can be improved and be better the next time around. And sometimes it's not work product. Sometimes it's just social skills and, you know, the way that uh, you are compensating somebody for listening to you is just being likable, you know, not being awkward, uh, having interesting things to say. And, and the ways you can help people are not always strictly professional. And I, one of the things that I've advised some younger people is they go, you know, I'm going to meet this big finance person or whatever, and I'm really nervous about it. And I was like, well, how are you going to approach that? And they have this huge elaborate plan. And I was like, you realize you would never talk to another human being this way. And, you know, I, I was talking to a... Uh, you know, very successful hedge fund manager. And, and I was like, hey, do you want to get a beer after work? And he was like, nobody under 40 has asked me to get a beer in 20 years. And I was like, well, do you want it? And he was like, yeah, which kind of was crazy to me. But there's a lot of angles you can take there, but you do have to figure out how to create a connection. You know, it doesn't have to be just work, but you got to you have to learn how to connect with people in one way or the other. Well, it's funny because that's actually so you and I met because I posted publicly. I was well, in right. New York. I, I, I had a, a free evening and I said, hey, I'm going to you know, be at this bar. Anybody wants to meet me there. And I, like 50 people showed up. But it was, right. you know, one of the best parts about it was actually getting the chance to sit down and put a name and a face, uh, you know, with you. And so I, I completely agree with that. And I do think that there is a finishing school aspect to that, right? Have the courage to say, hey, let me, you know, can I buy you a drink? Or, you know, would you mind having coffee? And in general, trying to take advantage of those opportunities. And the single most important thing I would just continually emphasize is listen for the opportunities to add value, right? It's not, people are not going to come back to you and say, okay, I need you to do X, Y, Z, right? Because they have employees for that. And if they're using you as a substitute for an employee, that's probably a bad signal to you. Right. But if you can listen and pay attention to what people are trying to say and something that they're struggling with, and that can be online, it can be in person, that's a huge asset. I, I wanna change directions a little bit because we've, we've talked about the challenges of getting in the industry, we've talked about things that younger people can do to get involved with the industry um, and how they can improve themselves. But one of the biggest challenges I think that people face is, is that the schools, the academic background, what you're trained to do, doesn't feel an awful lot like what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, or at least very little of the stuff that I've talked about in terms of markets being the dominant features, things like flows or passive, they really don't get any mention in 
business school programming, undergraduate programming, et cetera. And so, you know, you you have made a number of comments over the years and and have indicated how your research process has begun to accommodate some of these things. Maybe you can give us some quick insights in terms of how you see it having changed. Yeah, I mean, a big part was you were talking about earlier um, the process of moving through a firm, a large hedge fund firm. And so as I started to meet more people on Wall Street, there were kind of two things happening simultaneously. One was I understood how to build factor models. Um, you know, I took class in college that covered that. I understood how to do normal financial modeling, research, all of those kind of baseline skills. And I was actually pretty good at value-add research and channel checking and things like that. I, I like to do a lot of scuttlebutt. But I was seeing pricing behavior that I couldn't understand or explain. And at the same time, I was going out for, you know, uh, lunches and dinners with friends of mine in the industry, and we were talking about ideas. And, and and two things I noticed: one was most of the time the analyst's best idea they could not pitch to their PM for some political reason or structural reason. And the second is a lot of times I would be talking about a name, and they go, "We could just never put that in the book because X Y Z reasons," um, or "We're selling that because X Y Z reasons." And none of them had anything to do with fundamentals or valuation or anything like that. Um, and I said, "Well, maybe these two things are linked." And, you know, again, coming from a very naive uh, background, I'm sure people watch this and go, yeah, duh, uh, especially anybody who's ever worked at a you know, mutual fund shop. But I started realizing, okay, there are all these, there are all these legal mandate constraints. And um, I started reading more about, you know, and I'd actually done an internship at Nuveen Investments on their ETF creation desk, and I'd seen some of that, but I didn't realize how big of an impact it had on, on markets. And so as I started to look at who was trading securities I, I was trafficking and evaluating and what their mandates were and how the flow dynamics were worked, and also kind of the passive as the core and the active around it, that's really how I think about it, um, there started to be incentive cascades of does it really make sense to spend time caring about this position at all versus bench if you can't actually add value with it or if it's just going to suck a lot of time or how much research does it understand does it take to, uh, to value the name? And that really slowly started us to kind of reevaluate how we were weighting factors because there, especially a lot of the, my friends who run small cap money, I see them get in these situations that just go completely off the rails. And when I looked at them, there were these really common elements of um, structurally inhibited flows and reasoned, very valid um, incentive reasons why nobody wanted to own the asset. Um, and so we kind of reframed thinking about the markets where we think the markets are efficient if you take into account all financial and non-financial costs, meaning these agency costs, these legal mandate costs, um, things like ESG, PR risks, uh, the cost of researching. And so you know, it's a great example um, that I was talking about recently in a lecture, which was, you know, I had a friend who does amazing research and he, you know, spent millions of dollars on researching a stock. But and then the stock doesn't behave the way he thinks it does. But the issue is, you know, it was a low float stock, and the cost he had put in researching was probably six or seven percent of the float. If you had like done the dollar comparison, so if you think about that research cost as a trading cost, because you need to do that research to get the conviction to make an investment, and you think about that plus slippage in and out, if you use like a CTA terminology, you do a round turn, then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm probably going to burn. You know, it's probably 30, 40% move that I'm going to burn out with my research plus my trading costs. And that's before I do any sort of risk assessment with an illiquid security. So, in that perspective, when I started looking at things that way, all of a sudden I was looking at these micro caps where 
on a fundamental basis, I thought it was maybe five times up or 50% downside. And I was like, oh, that price might actually be very efficient if the frictions are that wide. Because, you know, the classic example of arbitrage they used at Notre Dame was, you know, if you can buy a cup of coffee for a dollar and, and sell it for two dollars, that's arbitrage. But if it costs you six bucks to move the cup of coffee, you know, uh, that's, you know, your carry cost. So I started looking at equities more through that lens. And I started realizing a lot more stocks were more efficient than what I thought. Um, and then as I started to look forward and I saw more and more price moves that didn't make sense, as I started looking into flows, flows data, you know, every time I saw a stock that just started levitating for no reason, I'd look back and lo and behold, Vanguard, BlackRock, and three other funds had bought 35% of the outstanding uh, shares over a six-month period. Um, and especially in these, in these names where, you know, you have a bunch of style clustered hedge funds that own kind of the, the 10 or the 20% of the float that's residual off of that, it creates really interesting dynamics because if passive for whatever reason reweights and stops buying and then active sells at the same time, then you've got, you know, absolutely no liquidity and everybody's trying to get out. And I think the other thing is a lot of times people look at float, they don't think about how much of the volume is creation redemption of those ETF units. So when you actually look through to that, the kind of real organic volume of people actually moving in and out of the shares, particularly, and I'm talking a lot more about small and mid caps, I'm not talking so much about Apple. Um, but you may realize that there's 10% of the liquidity you think there is. And I think that actually contributes a lot more to valuations uh, than people want to think. And when you layer on, and then it has interesting um, cross effects with good and bad businesses. So you look at a business like Rollins or WD40 that are, you know, great businesses, but they're trading at valuations that are, you know, investment grade bond like, I would say. Um, they're just, you know, they're 2% free cash yield, something like that. Um, and they have a marginal beat and they rip um, in a way that makes sense based on convexity math for a bond. But, you know, you've WD40 up 18% on an earnings beat. And it's not that, like, there's people charging and wanting to buy WD40, it's that there's no shares to trade. Right. Um, and, and, and so, if you don't look at that, over time, yes, diversification, valuation, all these things will iron that out. But there are going to be a lot of moments, what we call binary moments, where you have these huge supply and demand imbalances. And you can have things happen that you never imagined were possible. You can have, you know, shorts quadruple in your face before going to zero. You know, all these horror stories you've always heard of. And, and, and they can happen. And now, once you recognize that, you realize you can invert all of that and it can become a weapon. And if you have one name where you like the fundamental case and there's no reason why all of these flow factors are going to favor it, and there's another name where I think the business is going to do well, and also I know that legally several entities will have to buy 40% of the company, you buy the name where there are price-insensitive buyers that are going to buy 40% of the shares because those guys are going to keep buying if the share price is up 10%, up 20%, up 50%, up 200%. And, and, um, and ironically, they're going to buy more. Right? right, because it's now a larger portion of the market cap of the index, right? So yeah. it creates the positive feedback loop that right. you dream of as an investor. Right, and you might say that that's just a, just a technical thing and it shouldn't affect my um, high and mighty uh, Ben Graham ideals. But what if that business is a high growth business that uh, uses its stock as currency to hire really good talent? What if their stock gets 5X and all of a sudden they can go afford to pay million dollars a year for data scientists? And their competitor is a $200 million micro cap who can afford to pay $70,000. Right. 
all of a sudden it becomes a real fundamental weapon against competitors. Well, and it speaks to the George Soros idea of reflexivity, right? It creates right. its own dynamics, particularly when companies are using their share price as currency to compensate their employees. They're using it as right. currency to acquire competitors, right? right. Those create their, and in many situations, you brought up Amazon early on, you know, when a company issues stock to its employees in the form of options, it actually is accreting to its free cash flow because the exercise of those options, right. the strike price goes into the company's you know, balance, uh, goes into the company's uh, checking account, and they're ultimately in a much more cash-rich position than one that wasn't able to take advantage of those dynamics, right? So it creates a feedback loop that I think is quite powerful. We're just now starting to see some of the academic research coming out to support this stuff. I mean, you and I have talked, for example, about the work uh, of Quajin and Gabay on the inelastic market hypothesis, which speaks precisely to this, saying, look, what actually happens when money flows into markets is that you need to get past people that can't sell to you, that don't have liquidity, don't have the ability to say, uh, we're going to make that available. Or on the other side, and this is one of the, the pushbacks I remember early in my career, the question about holdings was always one of, well, what are the smart guys own, right? Who are the other people who are holding this stock? I've made myself distinctly unpopular in the industry by saying, well, if you find something that's crowded with a bunch of hedge funds or with a bunch of long-only active managers, that's just another way of saying that those assets are sitting in the hands of people who are forced sellers. A friend of mine put it as, if Andre the Giant has his foot on Mike Tyson's neck, who's the better boxer? Exactly. <laughs> Very well said. I like that. It, you know, the position, it just makes it completely irrelevant. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think a big cognitive bias people have is that they see a weakness in something. They see how something could not be true. And then that short circuits to, thus, we don't need to consider the phenomenon at all. And obviously, there are exceptions to all of the things we're talking about, but it doesn't mean they're not worth evaluating. And I actually think that this is a, with the flows dynamic has become a dominant factor, not a secondary factor. And I think that's where everybody's kind of behind. Yeah, I think that's right. That's exactly what our analysis leads to as well. And it also influences how you think about other factors, right? I mean, right. for example, quality gains value in a flows-based world for the very simple reason that you experience reduced volatility drag, right? You're not gonna have the crazy earnings beats or earnings loss, you know, earnings miss, that potentially calls into question the durability of the business or the risk that it gets knocked out of an index. And so WD-40, which is a super high quality company with a very durable franchise and very clear transparency, gets to benefit from nobody being able to sell when they beat earnings yet again by a penny, right? And right. so those who were short thinking that they were shorting some glamour stock that uh, Ken French has assured them is going to underperform over time, are suddenly left trying to do the equivalent of getting Bitcoin hodlers to sell to them, right? And, right. you know, we, we see this in other markets. It doesn't always become transparent in our own. So when you think about that, where do you put this in your process then? How do you, do you select stocks on the basis of who's buying, who's selling, who's holding, or... Are you adding that in on top of the traditional analysis? Do you still think there's a there's a role for traditional analysis in this process? Yeah, I mean, we kind of think of the stock picking is kind of what gun you're using and the flows are kind of the weather. So I still want to understand the weapons platform. Um, I think uh, so. Our, 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 our view is that 
if you are doing fundamental research based on where a price is, you are a technical trader, which offends people. But if the reason you're looking at a business is because it's down, that means you're walking in with a, I want to buy this bias and the chart's down. And I think you should probably just put a stop on it and buy the chart if that's what you want to do. We decide we're going to research based on where we think there are things worth knowing over five or 10 years. Um, it doesn't mean that it has to be a growth industry. It can be an industry that's not going away. Um, and we want to have an intellectual property base that we build off of that. And that's you know not just models and reading and all of that. That's also building up the network and we know what's going on. Um, and then once we've done all that research and we understand that industry, that gets put into a tracking system we've built which tracks not just you know price and fundamental indicators, but a lot of other stuff, a lot of other behavioral cues. Um, out of that can come flow signals and things like that, where, because what we've realized is that there's a reflexive impact here, as you said. And so there are circumstances where, um, from the perspective of what I would say is like a naive value investor, you'd say, well, maybe they execute this year, but what about year four, five, six, right? Valid question. And if you own the business, if you actually own the whole business, very valid question. Uh, and you can have good reasons to think why one thing might happen or another thing might happen. However, there are setups where that same thing happens where if the company does well for two or three quarters, all of a sudden the flow cannon kicks on. And you can just look at all the comps or whatever, however you want to just construct the basket, 20, 25, 30, 35% of the shares are going to get bought in a completely price insensitive way at the same time the company is crushing it. And so it makes business inflections a lot more valuable, actually. Um, now, you know, you can go through and do a universe-wide comparison, and, you know, especially if you're going to diversify, it might be different. But for us that are looking to make more concentrated investments, 5%, 10% of capital, we've kind of realized that, look, if we can find one, two, three of these a year where we think the next year or two, this company is really going to perform and it's at the right size, right liquidity, and those, those trading dynamic metrics are going to improve over the next two, three, four quarters in tandem with fundamentals. We just get a huge supercharger effect uh, on the fundamental analysis because we know the flows are going to play ball with us. So instead of us needing to figure out, you know, when we're when we're you know going to go long or short something, we try to figure out what is the, what's going to make the other side of the trade capitulate. Um, which is still something you really need to do because especially where there's this low liquidity situation when somebody capitulates the price move, it's huge. But especially on the long side, um, you can simplify a lot of things. If you know a business is, is good, but you also have these flow things alongside you, it's the same reason people own these stocks. All of a sudden the volatility comes down, the, the upside's smoother, you have, you have frequent buying, you can buy dips more confidently. Um, versus let's say you buy another stock. We've had several situations early on in the fund, especially where, you know, about six or seven value funds own the name. And that was kind of all of the float. And the issue there was if one of them blows up or has redemptions, the stock's getting obliterated. If the value factor moves, they're getting obliterated. And securities inherit some of the characteristics of their owner base. And that's part of what happens with factors. Um, and when you go into these situations where, uh, well, that's just something you need to evaluate. There's a lot of different situations and you need to do that type of analysis, understand how and why this, the security will trade the way it does. With this flows dynamic, it's very easy to kind of dislike it because it seems distasteful and I kind of find it distasteful, but it is the reality. And this flows dynamic is something that really can simplify a lot of things in terms of your surety that the business will receive credit for its fundamental outcomes. 
Um, so we want to look at both. Um, and once we have, you know, all, every name we've ever looked at is on a tracking sheet, and we do have flow metrics tracked off those. I'm not at a point, I'm not a systematic momentum trader or anything like that. I'm not going to go trade based on a flow signal if I have no idea what it is because, you know, it could be some uh, ADR scam that blows up overnight or something like that. I don't know. But for my, my strategy, uh, I want to know what I'm trading, and then I'm going to use the flow stuff as an indication of how to size. When you think about those dynamics where the flows become enhancing to your process. One of the things I guess that I would highlight to people is, is that this has always been true, right? This is one of the reasons why yeah. being at a prop desk at the center of the universe was the key to becoming a talented and efficient trader because you actually did understand that an order coming in was influencing the price, not necessarily the fundamental event. Now, the fundamental event may have been the catalyst for the order flow coming in, but it's the order flow that actually makes the price move, right? And so one of the things that I'm hopeful, and it's one of the reasons that I've spent so much time educating people on this, is, is that people will recognize that this was always a feature in the market. It's just now become a dominant feature. And I agree with you that it is an element of distaste to it, right? I, I don't like the fact that the first stop for me is always, who's the holder base? Is Vanguard buying? Is BlackRock buying? Is it occurring in funds that have a built-in permanent component where I can effectively say they're going to continue to buy this thing forever, right? Those, that's not where you always want to make it the first choice, but you're effectively just playing John Maynard Keynes's beauty contest and saying the guy who gets all the chicks now is Vanguard, right? And that's the, that's the only person that you need to care about what they're going to think is really beautiful, right? Now, that's an oversimplification and a statement, right. But that really is kind of the underlying dynamic that's occurred now. You basically are figuring out who's going to be the next buyer, who's going to be the incremental buyer. My problem with value is not that I actually disagree that it's a bad idea to go out and buy stocks that are trading at a discount to your estimate of intrinsic value. I actually think that's an incredibly valuable process and an incredibly valuable exercise to go through. The problem that exists today is that a stock that meets those characteristics has a disproportionate overlap on a Venn diagram with people who are facing redemptions and who are getting fired, right? And so that creates challenges. It means that you can't often do what you want to do because the reality is different. All of these, you know, there's a dynamic and then it creates incentives and the incentives start to cascade and loop. And so one of the things that happens here is that as you go more into value that is asset-oriented, you know, book value ratios and things like that, you start to have greater and greater agency costs because why is a CEO uh, – if there is a coal mine that actually is worth all this money and it's trading in this little equity stub and the CEO makes eight hundred grand a year, why would he allow public market investors who have abandoned him – to inherit all this money versus call a guy at BlackRock or Blackstone, sorry, Blackstone, and do an SPV and buy it or, or do something else. There's a lot of these asset-based value plays and smaller companies, there's no reason for them to be public and there's also no real reason for the management teams to deliver any of that value to you. And so there's these, you know, and on the other hand, if they had have it figured out, they would have the benefits of these flows things. And so you have these weird, uh, kind of emergent um, agency and incentive problems that I think are really um, under-evaluated. Um, 
you know, you can go into situations where it's not a passive flow situation, but at that point you're at a poker table with probably six or seven other funds that matter and you better know what they're doing. And also why are they going to share with you? Um, and so as you get into smaller and mid cap names, you know, a lot of people like to say things like, oh, this is an under traffic stock. Nobody knows what it is. No, that's nonsense. Like there is an organization of people that sit on the board of this company that manage this company. They are not idiots, generally speaking. Um, and usually they have a different set of motivations. It's not just they just don't know what they're doing. And you're just unaware of that. Um, and so it gets a lot more complicated because when you go to the places where value seems to still be, you realize you're just in the swamp. And there is just all sorts of insane schemes happening. Um, and also there's all this, there's this huge question of if a management team can't communicate well with investors, with people who are showing up saying, I would like to gamble this dollar on you, which is what people are doing. If they can't communicate with them, what are the odds they can communicate with team members, with potential hires, with customers? It's very, very low. So you have a lot of, you know, you have these behavioral dynamics and structural and legal dynamics and incentive dynamics that are moving in one way. And the remaining bin of kind of value names you see these 500 page threads on are just so hairy and messy. And if there was value there, there's no reason why a private equity person wouldn't just snatch it, especially once you're talking under a few billion dollars. And so it leads you know, a lot of these traditional definitions of value into these kind of uh, Rorschach tests where you're so offended by the idea of paying a, a screen to multiple over X that you're willing to look past a guy who clearly has the intention to screw you or an entire group of people who have always screwed their shareholders. Um, because you back, you are so obsessed with this idea of not overpaying that you're ignoring everything else. Uh, and that's really the, the big risk for, for value now is, is being so opposed to anything that isn't low multiple investing that you just make clearly horrible decisions. Well, and, and I would actually highlight, so one of the things that you've heard me make criticisms of value is if value were really cheap, then I might change some of my views. But value itself suffers from the inflationary dynamics, the, va the multiple expansion dynamics that, that I talk about with passive as well, right? So it is lifting all boats. It is a tide that lifts all boats. It is doing less for the value sector and the redemptions from value managers are pushing them lower. But in many situations, these are far from cheap stocks and in, and in a lot of situations, they are carrying significant quantities of debt. We're now starting to see the impact in the debt markets. A report came out on Bloomberg today highlighting the fact that many debt issues are now being totally wiped out. Recovery is way below levels that we'd ever seen before. Uh, and my sense is, is that in the value space, you're actually looking at being even more removed from that, right? Many of these companies can actually unquestionably go to zero if there is any form of substantive disruption disruption to the credit markets that have largely kept their cash flows alive. So you, you have these crazy situations where, to me, it feels like the irresponsible trade is to try to drop in quality, reach for that lower valuation so that you feel comfortable being smart while everybody, everyone else around you has, quote unquote, lost their minds. Well, the other problem you have to play out is with the way the holder base works of assets, and this comes back to, you know, I think there's there's theoretical analysis and then there's practical application. And that relates to kind of commerciality, which is something people need to understand. If 
equities have an outflow, this idea that there's going to be this rotation to value, that tech is going to sell off, you know, 80% and value is going to ascend at the same time. If you look at where those assets sit, who controls them, and the legal constraints around that, it's really not possible because their portfolio, as assets go down, their portfolio is going to de-risk and rebalance in a way that's not going to drive that. I don't think it's mechanically possible for an early 2000s type move to happen. I think it's very possible for there to be a large correction or crash, and then things kind of come out of it in a way that maybe net favors value. But this idea that because the market's too high, you should buy value. No, you're just going to have the same downside. Or significantly worse because right. of the weaker if you capital the structures. Right. right. So people haven't really like, again, this is this whole thing of people having a significant thing, a thing they find distasteful, then they stop thinking and they go to what feels safe. They want the safety blanket and value. And, and I, I have made some jokes about this on Twitter, but value suffers from. Uh, what I would call fairy tale bias. There are so many of these wonderful stories about ignoring everything in the world and just value, and it worked out great. And the two issues there are that one, anybody who actually knows anything about Warren Buffett in detail will tell you that those stories are significantly not accurate in terms of how things actually went down. And two, you're seeing the two survivors uh, in front of the thousands of bodies behind them. Um, and, and and that's just you know uh, problematic. Um, so, I mean, it's hard. It's complicated. And I think people people struggle with this. And I, I think the concept of Mr. Market, it might have been novel at some point, but now it's so permeated that people go, oh, Mr. Market's drunk right now. And I'm like, well, is he drunk or is there a significant legal mandate that is driving this? And if that's the case, do you just need to monitor that legal mandate? Because this can't stop until that legal mandate changes. So we can yell about Robinhood traders all day, but they're completely irrelevant to what's going on. And the idea that it's just, and, and then because there's a legal mandate that has to change, there is a timing element. So, you know, people are kind of quitting on their thinking, I think, because this has been so existentially difficult. I would say the last five years in markets, things have changed a lot. The last 10 years, a lot of people go, well, you weren't there for 2008. And I kind of was, but since 2008, I would say markets have gotten a lot more existentially difficult for investors. A lot of investors have kind of, you know, will get obscenely upset over the Fed and all these other things. But, and I'm not saying that's not true. Like, if I sit down and think about it a little too long, I, my head starts to spin. But the problem is you, your, your brain short circuits and you stop thinking and then you take a bad move. And it's like in poker when you go on tilt. It's very, very similar to that. People find all of this so distasteful that they go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy value. And it's like, well... You're, you, you necessarily, if you're right about the reasons that you're bearish on growth, you're going to lose money on value here. So, you know, and on the other hand, you can go buy a cheap stock if you know that something's going to happen. There's actually corporate action being taken. You know, something's going to change. But just like a naive value approach, I just think doesn't actually make sense if you actually work out the mechanics of how the market works. Well, I, I think you're hitting on, on the really critical component, which is I think there were a lot of people – that were very poorly served by how things played around the 2000 market rotation, where they effectively felt that there was a validation of a simplistic value approach. And as regular listeners to my stuff know, like my conclusion is what happened was a very simple portfolio rebalancing, right? You'd had roughly a three-year run where technology had massively outperformed. 
at the time people thought about small value and they thought about, you know, they thought about allocations in kind of a Morningstar style box. And so they tried to reallocate away from the outperforming sector, which had been allowed to run and move into everything else. And that created conditions under which people felt validated in saying, well, the market is crazy. The market lost its mind. People were, you know, the, the euphoria of that type of event will never happen again in our lifetimes. And yet here we are at even higher valuations with what most people would describe as general depression in our industry, right? Nobody's running around and, and celebrating this because we suddenly realize that we're the hunted. Right, we're, we're we're not the masters of the universe. We are facing extinction, um, and that's perhaps a little bit melodramatic. But my concern is is that that is actually exactly what's happening, and unless people take kind of the lesson that you've taken, which is flows were always important, and they've just become more important today. But that doesn't mean we can stop doing all the other stuff of understanding businesses, etc. My fear is is that we're going to lose that skill set, and we're going to be meaningfully harmed as a society from losing that ability to allocate capital and think about it without attaching some of the emotion to it. So it on, on a personal basis, it means a lot to me. That's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on to see the younger generation begin to recognize this and begin to play the game, at least as I think it should be played, which is we need to understand who the next buyer is. We need to understand who the next seller is. We need to consider these flows in the context of the fundamental analysis. Right, and it's not it's not abandoning the fundamentals in any way. I mean, I I'm selecting what I'm investing in based on fundamentals, supply chain dynamics, and ultimately competitive stuff. But if I have if I have two stocks that are completely the same thesis, and I know somebody's going to be there to buy one of them, why would I not buy that one? Yeah. Um, and and I think that um, look, you know. This, it, this actually relates back to what I was saying about Twitter. You know, the world is changing and there's a lot of things that seem distasteful or silly or trivial, but there's these new complicated games that you really have to learn. And, you, you know, it's not that you have to abandon your principles. It's just you have to think about, okay, if I just consider flows on top of my fundamental analysis, what risk does that pose to me and what potential gain does that pose to me? And the, the answer is no risk. And significantly improved uh, gains potentially. Um, and it also has helped, the other thing I would say is it's helped me figure out when situations are a lot riskier than I thought they were. And I do end up buying the stock, but I end up buying the stock significantly lower, which is really nice as a value guide. And so you can even spin it that way and, and use this as a, as a way to figure out when you can. And the funny thing is, again, none of this is new. I mean, Seth Klarman talked about this, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s, about like looking for funds that were blowing up to buy forced liquidation sales. None of this stuff is new, but this all seems like a sideshow. Um, and, you know, it's 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 not. It's, it's the dominant force in the market. And um, and as we're seeing, you know, kind of globally right now, it's becoming more and more legally required. Uh, it's not really, you know, that's the other thing I, I always try to emphasize to people is this isn't like people, this isn't like some guy waking up today and being like, I'll index. Like, that's not what's happening. This is, this is a much more complicated thing here happening at a governmental and institutional level. And it's not, you know, so it's not some guy who's drunk or sad on a, on a, on a day. This is something that's being written into mandates and there's complicated issues around the career timelines of the people versus the legal timelines of the people that are involved in these decision making 
and the upside and downside asymmetry of those decisions making. And also, what are the goals of capital? And I think that's underanalyzed. One of the things talking about WD-40 again, just to you know, uh, beat that dead horse again, is one thing that I think fundamental guys do is they think of every stock as if that's that, that is somebody else's whole portfolio versus if it's a 50 basis point weight. If it's a 50 basis point weight in a quality portfolio, they don't care if it's at 50 times earnings because they've got something else that's at seven times earnings. And overall, it's not going to make a difference. And the valuation risk they're taking there versus the cost of trading in and out of it and justifying it and having the memo, it just doesn't make any sense, especially when the benchmark's maybe at 60 bips of it and they have 50 bips. So you need to understand in context who owns these things and why. Um, and and just use that and, and you know, we don't trade very much is the other thing. Like we're just looking for specific huge imbalances that are created by this. You know, a business that is inflecting in a way where finally it's going to get bought or all of a sudden this thing is going to, it can go the other way too. Something can happen and, this th and you can have stocks get kicked out of the indexes. And we've all seen things like Malincrot where, you know, it's a, it's a Zeppelin or it's a, it's like the Hindenburg coming out of the sky. So, you know, we just look for what we call binary moments, which is where you have a supply-demand imbalance that's created by this that gets so extreme, and those give you those give you periods where you can really punch it, and that's really what the breaking the Bank of England trade was for Soros. It was a binary moment. You had a defined supply and demand issuance with a fixed, basically a fixed risk thing, and you know, it, at that point, it had nothing to do with fundamentals or this, that, or whatever. It was a math equation. Um, and it, you know, old boss might used to say price simplifies when referring to value, which I still agree with. But there's also a different thing, which is when the kind of pressure of flows gets so extreme, it gets very, very simple in that moment. And anybody who's ever been squeezed on a short knows exactly what that is. But very few people have taken that squeeze experience and then thought, I mean, I know I'm amazed how many short sellers lose money repeatedly on shorts, and I'm somebody who's done that, and they don't think, can I reverse this into something I can make money off of? And part of it's distasteful to maybe think you might buy a stock that you want to be short. But you don't necessarily have to buy those stocks, but there's still something to be learned. And I think most of the, if you learn, if you're losing in any way in the market repeatedly, there's something you can learn and weaponize there if you're open to it versus saying the market's wrong. Well, I think that's a, I think that's actually a great place for us to start the process of, of wrapping up because if we look at you know, we've used the word distasteful many times in this, but but at the same time, that's just another way of saying it's a barrier to people doing something, right? It's it, like you you need to understand that this is not a moral business in the sense that there's good and evil in the process. There are good and bad outcomes. There are there are evil individuals that are involved in the process, but it is ultimately a very quantitative space where what you're really trying to figure out is what price is going to be the next price. And the insights that you're referring to in terms of the flows and the behaviors of those individual investors, and many of those, as, as I've highlighted, are among the most fantastically simple roles, right? Did you give me cash? If so, then buy, right? I mean, you've heard me say that over and over again. That's really what you're highlighting. If I were to ask you to take a step into the, the future, Right. If you were to stop and say in five years how you think the game will be different, let's just spend five minutes on that and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. I think we're going to stay at relatively high valuations. I don't know if they're going to be here, but I just think we're at a point where the aggregate amount of debt in the system is, is such that the correlation between 
asset markets breaking down and a borderline societal doomsday are too high and it's just not really going to be allowed. And I think create and I keeping that correlation is part of what's happening with these legal mandates around asset allocation. But um, so I think we're going to have high valuations. I think that's going to lead to more of these really pronounced extreme short-term volatility shocks uh, in individual securities and overall asset classes. So I think you know what you're seeing in the flows dynamic is why you're having this grind up and then crash. And also the weird thing that's happened in the last several years is every time there's been a major crash, there's basically been a billboard if you're reading papers of this is, you know, I mean, just absolutely in, in, insane that the market didn't react to COVID and, until when it did. Um, um, uh, so I, I think you're going to have, you know, huge volatility spikes that are going to be intermittent. I think I think valuation is going to stay high. I think the people that structure their firms to take advantage of those phenomenon, either at, you know, in a kind of mean reversion way or a momentum way, or just buying a select number of good companies or kind of stat arbing around them, those all do well. I think crossover funds are going to do tremendously well because there are still, especially if a value add element there, I think there's still returns to be driven uh, private to public. And I think there's a lot of really low quality stuff in the private markets. So I think there's probably actually interesting stuff there. Um, um, I mean, I, I, the other thing, my biggest view right now is that this year has accelerated the competitive dynamic in, in huge, huge uh, areas of business. And so I think the next five years, more than anything on a, on a fundamental basis, is going to be winners and losers. Um, and that's a little scary from a societal perspective. But I think that my view on technology is that it's more about what will people use. It's not about what the tech can do. Everybody's obsessed with what the tech can do. I care a lot more about what our consumers actually using because once a consumer starts using it, you can loop and iterate the technology and then you get a flywheel and COVID has forced everybody to go through a screen and it's why everybody's so upset. It's why a lot of things are happening and it is just an absolute extinction event for a lot of small businesses. I really don't buy this new business start thing. I think people forming LLCs to try to sell things online uh, you know, that's great. But, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a really big problem here of, you know, we've had the biggest transfer of power in the last year to date. We've had the biggest transfer of power from small businesses to large businesses who already had a lot of power in a long time, let's say. Uh, and I think that that's probably not going to slow down. I don't think it matters who wins the election in that regard. Um, and um, and so I think in the next five years, you know, there's going to be a lot of alpha as a long short manager with businesses just crushing other businesses, a lot of monopolistic behavior. But I think the key is going to be you're going to have to figure out how the flows interact with that. So um, there's going to be a lot of shorts that are right that are going to lose money for a long time right until they have a trigger. And I think you have to figure out what is the catalyst. Um, you know, what is the information? How does the information get diffused? How is it interpreted? And how does it affect actual trading behavior? You need to break down each of those steps uh, if you're going to be short selling. I think the, this this it'll end badly, therefore I have a short position, is going to get you absolutely killed. Uh, you can't do that anymore. I don't know if you ever could, but you really can't do it now. So I think being kind of structurally long, good businesses at reasonable valuations with flow tailwinds and having some shorts and then sizing things up based on flow signals is going to do really well. So that's what I'm doing. I think that makes a ton of sense, and it's similar to the way I look at it. I just structurally don't see a path to reduced passive influence, at least over the next five years. Right. And so my models that says valuations are high and potentially even higher 
is right. is really what that boils down to. With that said, exactly as you're describing, when the system briefly switches into a net selling phenomenon, that same dynamic creates the risk of extraordinary volatility. And I think that's one of the real challenges for people that are trying to trade this on a long-term basis. I regularly hear from people saying, oh, well, if you're right, then the right answer is just you know, buy a five-year call option on the S&P, right? Well, you're creating a path dependency with those types of trades that are quite hard. And we're now seeing, you know, we've seen SoftBank and others try, try to step in and play the game you know, by my analysis, they've gotten taken to the cleaners on on some of this sort of stuff. Um, it it this is a really really hard game, and unfortunately, it's not a game that that seems to have a lot in common with the one that people would have historically played. So it's exciting, as I said, to see you know younger smart guys come in and embrace it, and figure out how to incorporate it into their process so that they're they're in a position to capitalize when the opportunities are there. Dan, this was awesome. I mean, I, you know, Thanks, Mike. Uh, Super Magatu couldn't have done better himself. <laughs> for those who want to follow Tyro and, and Dan and the rest of your team, what's the best way for them to uh, reach out to you or to obtain information on what you're doing? Uh, just tyropartners.com. We've got a website. There's a you know contact uh, email, phone, whatever you guys uh, would like up there. And you can, of course, see me on Twitter and, uh, you know, comment uh, on Real Vision and, um, you know, uh, we are always available to chat with anybody. Well, and I, I look forward to taking advantage of that. I keep I always promise people that I want to come back and revisit. In this case, you know, for me, the most important part of this was actually answering some of the questions about how can young people get involved in this industry? How can they position themselves for success? You know, you've really, I think, blazed a path for the next generation. I'm super excited to see how it develops going forward. And I would like to check in with you. I know you've got some really exciting events on the horizon you can't talk about right now, but I would love to check in with you, you know, let's say uh, somewhere around the early part of 2021. We can Absolutely. kiss 2020 off into the into the rearview mirror and embrace what's coming forward. So I'd love to do that. Sounds great. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Dan, thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.